As you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel today is taken from the fourth chapter of Matthew. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, by the ro- on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting their net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm focusing on our reading from 1 Corinthians this morning, a follow-up to last Sunday's focus, as that reading continued straight through Corinthians. And Paul's letter to the church that he had established several years before and that he'd been away from for several years. Last week, we looked at four elements Paul identified for our unity in the church, the body of Christ on earth. And those were our call. God calls us into relationship with God. Second, gift. God freely gives us all the spiritual gifts that we need to have life together as the body of Christ, as the church. Thirdly, grace. This is why God acts. God's love, freely given, no strings attached, simply because God loves us and wants us in relationship with God and is most clearly revealed in Christ. And finally, fourth, hope. God's other gifts bring us the sure and certain promise that there's hope, something beyond the turmoil, the hurts, the pains of this life that gives us meaning that we can look forward to, life eternal with Christ. All of these originate with God and are for our benefit, living together as God's people and spreading the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus to our community and to the world. It's that holy concrete, if you will, bonding and holding together the wonderful diversity of the church into one. But humans doing what humans do 
all's not perfect in the church in Corinth any more than it's perfect in the church in any age. In today's reading, Paul begins addressing conflicts that threaten the unity of the church in Corinth. Athletic teams, armies, even nations have rallying points or people which pull them together for a common cause to face life and stress and threats together. Years ago, I read about how soldiers in armies of ancient days would even sacrifice their lives on the battlefield to make sure that the standard, the banner of the king or the general stood erect and vertical during the battle so that soldiers caught up in fighting for their lives could look up and see that and be inspired or see it through the smoke of gunfire and continue fighting, help them stay together. Sports teams have their rallying cries. Don't know how we're going to pull it off in here, but uh, you've heard it in basketball arenas. <laughs> um, one side will chant, wake, forest, wake, forest. I thought y'all would just pick that right up. Gosh. Or, and then the other side starts up, you know, a little bit louder, tar heel, tar heel. But they cheer their team on. And it rallies them together. It wouldn't be the same if they chanted the name of the coach, would it? The coach isn't on the court. The coach is on the bench. But they cheer their team on. It holds the crowd and the team together to strive. In other contexts, that unifying force might be a person, a candidate for a political party, for instance, that pulls them together. Congregations, we have our rallying points too. Favorite ministry leaders, energizing mission projects that we have to work together because God's called us to it and it's bigger than we could do alone. Even preferred service, worship time or style. We all have those favorites, don't we? The church in Corinth appears to have had some influential, charismatic leaders. Paul names them, doesn't he? Paul, Apollos, Cephas, plus those who claim to be above the fray since they followed Christ. But they were still a group. There was still a faction causing division. Not what Christ wanted. But no doubt, the church in Corinth grew with those leaders. But then... They were human. Their focus shifted. People began to choose up sides rather than being united as one community of believers. In my mind, I could hear those people in Corinth basically chanting, my leader's better than your leader. Sounds like children on the playground, doesn't it? Taunting one another, squabbling. But in Corinth, it had a much more serious impact, didn't it? Their disagreements, their favoritism was tearing at the fabric of the church. The people had lost sight of their true point and source of unity. They were making the individual leader more important than their mission and their very reason to exist. They were forgetting their mission to live together as a very diverse community under God's reign 
in one unified community of faith and to invite more and more people to share in that mission and that community centered on Christ. They were forgetting their reason to exist, forgetting what had called them initially into community, forgetting what gives their lives meaning, the cross of Christ. The church was an anomaly in the first century. It was an unheard of community that was incredibly diverse, economically and ethnically, slaves and freed persons together equally, wealthy and impoverished together equitably. The church was radically counter to the culture, beyond what any human could have brought about. It took the divine action of God through Christ and the Holy Spirit intervening in the human world to create this caring community of people who are called together, called to a better life here and now for themselves, for their cities, and indeed for the world. So here's the first problem that Paul addresses in Corinth. The personalities of the key leaders had created factions. Maybe the leaders encouraged that or at least tolerated those factions. I mean, it does feel good to have our egos stroked when we're leaders in groups, doesn't it? Apollos, Paul, and Cephas, they had egos. Those guys were human like us. We get encouraged when our egos are stroked. Maybe they even encouraged those factions. So Paul, I think, takes a two-pronged approach in today's reading to these divisions. First, he turns to baptism. Baptism is the washing with water and the Word of God which calls us into faith in Christ. Remember, call is part of the holy concrete that Paul identified as our unity that holds the church together. God calls these people in Corinth out, reminding them that although one of those human church leaders had led their baptism, the baptism had joined them to Christ and the cross of Christ, not to that human or any human leader. In the small catechism, which Martin Luther wrote, that we still use for instruction of faith, and many of you maybe had to memorize when you were little, younger, Luther wrote this about baptism. With the Word of God, water is a baptism. That is, a grace-filled water of life and a bath of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul says to Titus in chapter 3, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, this Spirit He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is sure, or as we learn maybe, this is most certainly true. Through the gift of baptism, the Holy Spirit makes us part of Christ, of God's one family. Being born anew, our sinful self dies, and we're given life anew in Christ. We are made heirs to all that is Christ. If we are heirs of Christ, that means 
we're all in the same family, right? We're all bound together, not by our act, not by our will, but by the gracious act of God calling us through the water and the Holy Spirit in baptism. Baptism unites us, bonds us together into one body, the family of Christ on earth, the church. The second prong, I think, of Paul's correctives today is the cross of Christ. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. That is to say, I think, Paul wasn't a fancy, well-trained theological orator whose eloquent speeches impressed, persuaded, and convicted people. But no doubt, Paul was a powerful communicator. Rather, Paul's proclamation pointed people to the cross of Christ, the saving power of Christ that was revealed in the cross. His words were so simple so that people did not lose sight of the source of their unity, the source of their power in the world, the source of their salvation that gives them hope beyond this world. Paul kept the saving power of the cross of Christ front and center, just like in our worship space. Paul wanted everyone's eyes on the cross of Christ and its saving power. Our theology as Lutherans is rooted in and shaped by the cross. When our lives, our faith, and our mission are centered on the cross, both individually and corporately, what are some things that we learn? In the cross of Christ, we see the embodiment of servanthood, self-sacrifice. Paul writes about it memorably in Philippians 2, verses 4 through 8. He says, let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the, same, let, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, And being found in human form, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We learn from the cross the mind of Christ. Humility, servanthood, self-sacrifice for the well-being of others. I think that's probably one of the hardest things for us as humans to do is to put another person especially strangers, even enemies before ourselves, put their needs first. Humility, servanthood, self-sacrifice for the well-being of others. We learn to trust God in that. We learn from the cross how much God loves us. On the cross, we witness God's only son choosing to suffer and die, showing us that his way of life, his teachings about compassion caring for our neighbors, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us is truly God's way. And as 1 Corinthians continues to unfold, 
Paul continues to build toward what I think is the pinnacle of God's divine action that solidifies the holy concrete of call, gift, grace, and hope, that self-sacrificing love that we know as agape love. That's the Greek word that's used for love related to God. And Paul unpacks that for us, doesn't he? But before that, he starts in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and he uses the image of the human body to stress the importance of unity and working together for the good of all. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, fingers, toes, hands, feet, all those things, and all the members of the body, though many, are, they are one body. So it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul tells us what this connectedness in the one body means. He says, if one part of the body suffers, all suffer together with it. If one part of the body, one member is honored, all rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Then comes chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, the pinnacle of Paul's counsel on unity to his church, to the church in Corinth. But chapter 12 sets us up for, you remember that last verse maybe. He says, but strive for the greater gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way, still more excellent way. In chapter 13, on love, agape love follows. Paul names those key characteristics revealed in the cross of Christ, the love of God in Christ. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love never ends. And this marvelous chapter ends with, and now faith, Hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest characteristic that binds us together in the body of Christ, the church, is the self-sacrificing, humble love revealed in Christ on the cross. When we take our eyes and our hearts off the cross and all that it reveals to us for our lives, we risk. We risk divisions and disunity. We risk not being able to fulfill the mission and the ministry that God has called us to as the church today. In calling out the divisions created by those personalities in Corinth that harm the body of believers there, Paul, I think, is reminding us to stay focused on the cross of Christ and what it reveals above everything else and everyone else, perhaps. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the cross of Christ and all that it teaches and reveals. Learn Christ's way of humility, Christ's way of servanthood, Christ's way of self-sacrifice and selfless love for others. The way of the cross The cross of Christ, not any person is what binds us together. 
The way of Christ is what binds us together so that we can faithfully pursue the mission and the ministry that God has entrusted to us. Amen.